The scripture reading today um, is James 1, verse uh, 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and, and of Jesus, uh, Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that these that are testing your faith develops perseverance. Per- perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be back on this side. Um, thank you for the privilege of preaching again. I thought my greatest accomplishment was having you as my friend, but I guess that, that wasn't the case. So, uh, we'll let that one go. Anyways, uh, two weeks ago, our pastor started a study on the book of James, and uh, when Chris and I chatted about me preaching, uh, he asked me if I would continue study, the study in the book of James, and I said, well, I preached it about 10 years ago. So I think I can probably handle that. And so this morning, we're going to look at three verses from chapter 1 that was just read for us. Now, uh, Chris did a great job in giving us some good background material on, the book, on this book of the New Testament. But I want to add just a couple of extra, um, some points of information that might help us to understand this book just a little bit better. Because um, when you read the book of James, it really is kind of different uh, than most of the New Testament books. Um, The entire letter, I think, is like the book of Proverbs. It has little bitty sayings, and he jumps from one subject to the other. You never know where he's going to go, kind of schizophrenic type of of writing. Um, But but when he does jump, he's very to the point, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, He wrote this letter specifically to a group of people, Jewish Christians, who were marginalized and pushed to the edges of the first century world. They were pursued and they were persecuted because of their faith. And these were people who were actually scattered all over the place by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. So I want us just for a moment this morning to try to put ourselves in their sandals and see if we can experience some of the things that they experienced as persecuted Christians. Again, they were Jewish Christians who had been scattered from their homeland, and now they've become Christ followers. And this makes them kind of a stain on society. Uh, Many of them were poor, and almost everybody hated them in their community, which is probably one of the reasons that they were struggling with poverty. They were not Christians who were living in the easiest of circumstances. That's who James is writing to. And so it makes sense that James would kind of start his portion of his letter by talking about trials and faith. So our text this morning Um, is considerate pure joy, James says. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I want us to first look at the second part of that verse, because James informs us that you and I are going to encounter trials, or in some translations, testings. But what I really find interesting is the word face that is translated in the NIV translation we, we just read. It's only used two other times in the New Testament. It's a very unusual word, and one of the places it's used is in the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, Jesus tells us the story of the Good Samaritan, and he says a man came down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. What I find interesting is the word attacked 
is the very same word that James uses as translated face. In other words, what I think James is saying here is that these difficulties, these testings come out of nowhere. And he doesn't tiptoe the subject. He puts it very bluntly. He writes that we are going to encounter trials and testings and difficulties. One more academic point here. The word testing or trials does not mean temptation to sin, but rather it comes from the Greek word that has to do with trying something out, testing something to make sure it's genuine. Um, I love children's books, probably because that's my level of thinking these days, but we can learn so many lessons from children's books, and one of those books is called We're Going on a Bear Hunt. Now, the last time I preached, I talked about bears, so you must think I must have this fascination about bears. I don't know. But anyways, the characters of this particular little book are on an adventure to find a bear. And it starts off with the phrase, we're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. Oh, what a beautiful day, and we're not scared. And so as you turn the page, they go on their journey, and the first encounter they have is this long, long grass. And they kind of push through the grass, and they see they can't go over it, they say. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we can't go around it, so we have to go through it. Then they encounter a deep river, and they say the same thing. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we have to go through it. And the story continues, and they encounter mud, a dark forest, a snowstorm, a deep cave, and in each of those incidences, they say, we can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we have to go through it to reach their goal to find the bear. They needed to go through their challenges. When you think about it, that's really the reality of our life. It can be scary sometimes. It can be hard sometimes. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. We can't even go around it. Oh, no, we have to go through it. And some of us might be going through something right now. Or we're praying for people around the world that are going through things even worse than us. And we're going to see today that our Bible doesn't gloss over the issue. It doesn't avoid the issue. But yes, it tells us we can't go over it. We can't go under it. We have to go through it. And the older I get, the more I realize this is so true in life. James says that these kinds of things we're going to meet. They're trials of many kinds, and they will come. He doesn't say maybe. He says they will come. We will encounter them. Over the years, I've heard people say to me, I'm really getting my faith tested, and that's so true. Sometimes trials will test our faith, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Think about school. Now, for some of us, I know that's a lot of years to go back, but think about when you were in school. What were the worst kinds of tests? They were the ones we weren't ready for. They were, the teacher would announce at the beginning of class, we're going to have a pop quiz. And you're like, oh, no way. Or perhaps you use a choice word, which I can't use my sermon. Why? <laughs> because we didn't study for it. We were totally unprepared, right? Well, James reminds us <clears throat> that the testing and the trials of our faith, that the testing and trials in life, these are things we're going to meet, big and small, all over the place, all across the spectrum. 
They come in all shapes and sizes. And what causes us so much anxiety about these things, if we're really honest with ourselves, what causes us so much anxiety is the fact that we don't know where they're coming from. We don't know when they're coming. And we don't know what's going to happen when we go through them. This list is endless because our trials and testings are varied, James says, or multicolored. So what do we do when we face trials and challenges and testings in our life? I wish I was really original here, but I'm not. I'm going to suggest that there are three ways that we can deal with testings and trials, and I get these insights from a little book called Interior Freedom by Jacques Philippe, who's a, a French writer. And the first response is that of being rebellious or to rebel. Philippe says that the first way we can respond to any kind of situation that's tough in our life is we can rebel against it. We can push against it. We can fight against it. We can get angry. And for those of us who are in that stage, we can even be angry at God. We can be mad at the world. We can be mad at anybody who had anything to do with that challenge. It could be our doctor. It could be our teacher. It could even be our spouse. Somebody at work pushing back. We're always pushing back. We're always complaining. And friends hear about it all the time from us, and they get tired of hearing about it. So Philippe says that's called rebelling. I think in many ways, this in our culture, this is kind of our default position. I really think it's probably one of the most popular responses. Now, at this point, Chris would probably go like this, but I'm not going to do that. All right. The second way that we can respond to testings and trials is to resign. Now, what this means is that when we encounter testings and trials and challenges, we believe we're very powerless in that situation, and we lay down and we give up. Now, in some ways, that's a move forward from rebelling, because we're acknowledging that we are powerless in the situation. And I think it's healthy for us to know and to understand and to acknowledge that sometimes we are helpless in that situation. But unfortunately, resigning often leads to a sense of powerlessness without hope. We resign in that trial and in that testing, and we begin to slip in despair. We get to the point where we don't even have the ability or the desire to pray about it or to ask people to pray about it. As far as we're concerned, it is way beyond any help, and faith cannot help in that situation. And faith cannot help us grow. But God loves us. And he looks at us and he says, oh man, I hate to see you stuck in that rebelling place. I hate to see you there because it's just compounding the pain of your situation. And I'm seeing that you're bitter and you're angry. I hate to see you in the icy depths of despair and resignation where there's no life. So he offers us, in his grace and goodness, a third way, which James tells us about, and that is to consider it pure joy. Now, I mentioned earlier, in some ways, James is my kind of writer. My wife will tell you, I am not into fluff. If you're going to get fluffy about something, that's not going to work for me. I'm a no-frills straight shooter. I just say it the way it is. In some ways, that's James. And when Pastor Chris teaches from chapter 2, we're going to hear James say to us, faith without works is dead. Bingo. End of story. Let's move on. In some ways, that's what he's doing this morning. He's saying, consider it all joy. Bingo. End of story. Let's move on. 
He doesn't give us any... I don't think by him saying that he consider pure joy that he's giving us a sounds nice slice of self-help or a poetic embellishment of, of pop wisdom. No, he gets to the point. Consider it pure joy. Not only are we going to face various trials and challenges, but the third option is that we have to, and the best option, is that we have to consider it pure joy. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is, uh, is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all kinds of evil things against you. Now, he doesn't stop there, but this is what Jesus says. Rejoice. Yeah, rejoice. Just as in the case you're not clear about it, he says it again. Rejoice, and then he adds another word, and be glad. Jesus informs us that he wants us to choose that posture when we go through difficult times. And James says that whenever we face trials or temptation, excuse me, or testing, consider it pure joy. He's saying the same thing that Jesus says, just using a different word. But how is that possible? Have you thought about that? How is it possible in the midst of challenges and testings that we rejoice, that we're glad. I would think, actually I believe I'm convinced, that the main problem is that we misunderstand the word joy. In a culture and in the society that we live, joy virtually seems to be synonymous with happiness. To us, joy means the absence of pain, the absence of challenge, but that's not biblical joy. Biblical joy is finding a deep satisfaction that actually comes in a relationship with God and understanding that our God loves us and our God is in control even when circumstances seem to be out of control. So the key to joy, the joy that James is talking about here, is to understand that God is in control, that God loves us unconditionally. And if we know that, we will be satisfied at the deepest level even when we face anything that happens to us. So joy really depends on our perspective. Joy in difficult circumstances. Joy when life falls apart. Joy that doesn't come naturally for us. I don't think we have the resources to self-will ourselves to joy. Someone once told me, you can't muscle your way to joy. Your way to joy, you can joy your way to strength. Joy can't come from us. It has to come from the Holy Spirit in us. But I think it also comes when we realize that our trials, our testings, and our challenges have a purpose. That the testings and trials that come our way are allowed, they're not given to us by God, I don't believe, but they're allowed to come into our lives under the sovereign hand of God, who loves us that nothing gets through those nail-pierced hands except what he allows. So joy does depend, I think, on perspective. I heard a pastor who used to have parties every now and then. And he believed this verse so sincerely that when he would face a difficult situation, he would call his friends over to his house and have a party. And he would call them up and say, I want you to come over and have 
to uh, come to my house and have a party. And they would say, it's your, is it your birthday? He goes, no. Did you get a promotion? Pastors don't get promotions. Sometimes they get demotions. Well, what's the situation? They would finally ask. He says, well, I'm really going through a really difficult situation right now, and I'm having a party. Because I want us to celebrate my difficulty because I know that this difficulty is going to bring something of special value in my life. I don't know what it is yet, but I want you to come and count it all joy with me. Have any of you ever thrown a party because you're going through a difficult situation? I never did. To tell you the truth, I think it would be kind of tough to consider it. But is that what it means to consider it pure joy, even while it hurts? Yet, it's important for us to realize that unless we go through that test, I don't think we'll never realize how much our faith is made up of. See, the fact, the problem, the main problem in our lives is not our problems. It's not our challenges. It's not our trials or testings. I think the main problem in our lives and our challenges and our testings is that if we don't go through it, we're not going to see our faith tested. And that's what James is saying as he continues. He says this, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. (laughs) James now gives us a great reason for our trials and testings. He says there's a purpose and a goal in it. And what I find interesting is that James connects it to the testing of our faith. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what's faith? Well, the New Testament actually gives us a wonderful definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, where it says that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. What we hope for and what we don't see. So let's try to catch what James is saying here. One way James says to be sure and certain of this faith that you don't see, of this hope that you hope for, One way of being sure and certain of those things is to be tested in your faith here in the world that you can see, here in a world that's rather tangible. Do you grasp that? He says you're going to be tested in life. There are going to be trials in your life, in the world that everything is by sight. He says, and this is the way you can have assurance and be certain of a faith you don't see but of a hope that you hope for. Again, faith, not works, is James' major concern in his letter. Now, going back to our text, he says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Another great word, a word we don't use too often these days. It's a wonderfully rich word. It sometimes is translated endurance, steadfastness, or patience. But if I were to retranslate that word in the vernacular of today, I would say it's staying power. It's stick to it power. It literally means staying under, not cracking and not running away. And while I do that, it's going to produce spiritual strength. It's going to produce tenacious faith because muscles grow under weight. So James says that the testing, the pressure we're under, is going to produce perseverance. And if we let it do its work, if we let it do its work. But I hear James describing a certain battle-tested faith that stands under all sorts of trials and challenges. 
will be the oak of righteousness, the Old Testament says, when trials come our way. Think about the Old Testament for a moment. I love the Old Testament. Matter of fact, most of the courses I took at seminary were in the Old Testament. <clears throat> but think for a moment of some things in the Old Testament. Think of poor old Joseph, who at 18 years old was sold to slavery, falsely accused of attacking his boss's wife, and ends up in prison. He realized that he couldn't get under that. He couldn't go over it. He couldn't go around it. He went through it and became vice pharaoh. What about Daniel? <laughs> I mean, Daniel was falsely charged with conspiracy. He lost all of his privileges and ended up in the lion's den. He realized he couldn't go under it. He couldn't go over it. He couldn't go around it. He went through it and learned about a God who delivers. That happened to the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But don't forget poor old Job. I mean, Job lost his fortune. Job lost his entire family, and the only thing he had left was his doubting, nagging wife. He realized he couldn't get under it. He couldn't go over it. He had to go through it. And for 38 chapters, he went through it. But at the end, he was blessed beyond belief. Each of these individuals understood that the testing of our faith produced perseverance. So one of the main purposes in trials and testing, I believe, is to produce mature faith. Because James says, let perseverance finish its work so that you can be mature and complete and lacking in nothing. See, God has a goal. Is James telling us that if we do exactly what James is saying, consider our testings and our trials with joy, that we will be without sin? Is that the kind of faith that really God is looking for? A perfect faith with no sin, with no failings? No. Of course not. He's not talking about sinless perfection. Instead, he's talking about the fact that God has a purpose and a goal in mind. He's bringing us somewhere. These trials and challenges are not random occurrences to see if we'll stand up. That's not the God that we believe in. That's not the way God does things. He is a kind and gracious God. Let's take this conversation out of the spiritual realm for a moment. How did you grow up? How did you mature as an, an adult? Most of you did, I guess. Um, didn't we mature and grow by falling, failing, and stumbling? I mean, think about it. Has growth and maturity for us physically, intellectually, and as a person come because everything went our way and everything we chose to do was spot on, right, and perfect? If it did, please, I want to meet you. Because it wasn't that case for me. We learn by failing. We learn by scraping our knees. We learn by thinking that we're right and realize that we're wrong. That happened once before. That's how all of us have matured. Do you really believe that the way we mature in real life would be different spiritually? No, I don't think so. We know it's not true. We want to believe that we can become mature Christ followers without trials and testings. We want to believe that we can mature without them, but that's not the world we live in. So if you're in the middle of a trial this morning, maybe you've forgotten. But those of us who have gone through the dark night of the soul and came out on the other side, we've seen how it's shaped us. 
We've seen how it's changed our interaction with people. We've seen how we've been able to walk alongside those who, went, who are going through the same thing we went through. We see how God taught us patience, and we found what's important and not important. The testing of our faith produces maturity. There is a process in the, tri- in the trials that lead us to God's product in us. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. We can't go around it. We have to go through it. And perseverance requires work and faith and hope and God-determination to hold on to our faith even when the world around us seems to be disintegrating. See, to me, perseverance says to me, don't give up. No matter what happens, no matter how bad life is, don't give up. Hold on to the promises of God. And I always believe that God always has something great in store for me. Because the reward of such gritty stubbornness, I believe, is genuine spiritual growth and maturity. When trials have finished their work in us, we will not lack anything. We'll need faith. God will give it to us. If we need hope, we'll have it. If we need love, we'll have it. If we need to experience the ninefold spirit, the ninefold fruit of the spirit, it will be produced in us. Nothing will be left out. Nothing will be left behind. The great danger, though, is that we try to short-circuit the process by running away from the trials and testings. I love the message translation on this particular verse. The message translation is, don't try to get out of anything prematurely. That's really good advice. Many, many years ago, my wife's idea of a vacation is to sit in a cabin with nobody around, except for me, of course. Well, maybe not even me sometimes. To sit in the cabin on a lake, meditating, relaxing, and all that type of stuff. My idea of a vacation is what we did many, many years ago. We went to California. My wife said, okay, let's do one of your vacations. We went to California, spent 12 days on the West Coast. We covered all of the wine country. We covered San Francisco, Carmel, Monterey, went down to to Los Angeles. We did Hollywood. Then we went over to Las Vegas for three days and two nights, went back to Orange County. Anyways, but one of those experiences, and I was rested and ready to go, and she was exhausted. But one of the things that we experience is what's called the, the most photographed tree in America. And it's in Carmel. It's in the 17-mile drive in Carmel. And it's at a rocky point overlooking the Pacific. And when you look at this tree, it's a gnarled, twisted cypress tree. Growing, it seems to be growing out of a rock. And you know that the winds have blown its branches backwards and forwards from, uh, from storms, and they were permanently shaped by the wind. And there are all sorts of pictures about this. Uh, men and women have painted this picture, taken photos of these pictures. And one of the famous artists of this, of, of this tree writes, strength to endure on the bottom. This indomitable cypress tree has something to say to us. When you look at that tree, it endured the storms through centuries and proudly wears its crown of life. It contributes strength to all who see it. I think of that tree when I think of trials and temptations, trials and testings, because that's God's purpose for us, to have the right attitude, pure joy in the trials and testings, understanding that it's going to shape our faith. 
And when it's difficult for us to see the advantages, I believe we can ask God, which Chris will probably talk next week about, ask God in faith, and he will give us the right attitude for those trials. We can rejoice and be blessed by enduring them. All I'm saying today is this. Trials and testings will come. And the third option is the best option. Consider it pure joy. Because our God is a good God. He is for us. He's not against us. And I'm not saying your trial is going to be awful, is not going to be awful. I'm not saying the circumstances are not going to be easy. But you haven't been betrayed by God. I will argue with anybody that those trials and testings that you're going through are not punitive. We can scream and cry and shake our fist at God. I would argue that if we are in Christ, if we are a believer in Christ, there is a removing of something that might be a discomfort for us, but there's a gift on the other end. It's not a bad trade. Remember, we have a God whose son walked in our shoes, who went before us, who knows exactly what it is to face crowds, who knew exactly what it was to face difficulties, who had no other agenda every day except to please his father. He got hit out of the blue. He had difficulties that came into his life that he didn't know about. He walked faithfully in our place. He knows what we're going through. Nothing surprises him. And he's always there. There is no other God but our God. Remember, you can't go over it. You can't go under it. Oh, no, you can't even go around it. You have to walk through it. Will you pray with me? So, Father, we, um, you know, sometimes, if we're going to be honest, we're going through rough times in our lives, and we just don't see the end. But St. John wrote about the dark night of our souls, and as we experience those dark nights, there's light at the end of the tunnel. There's an opportunity for us to grow, an opportunity for us to honor you, an opportunity to consider it all joy. My prayer, Father, is as we walk through these circumstances, these testings, these trials, that you would help us and give us strength to consider it all joy. We pray this in your name. Amen.